Oh, it's beautiful hearing you sing those marvelous and powerful uh, words uh, in Christ alone. I don't believe there is another hymn that could have been chosen uh, this very morning that would be more apt to where it is that the Lord is going to take us in His Word as we consider together Acts chapter 4 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. But before we read these two texts of Scripture, I want to simply uh, note with you a conversation, a brief conversation that I had uh, with a pastor friend of mine on Tuesday. He, he called in, in what was a, a bit of a flurry, and you could hear on the other line some concern. He said to me, Nate, I need mediation. When he said that, I suspected that he probably was referring to the legal kind as uh, we live in a fallen world and sometimes we need those legal kinds of mediation. He began to describe to me a bit of the story that he was facing and he was curious as to whether there was someone that I could recommend, someone I knew locally who might be uh, a resource to him in his need for mediation. But I have to be honest with you, when he first said Nate, I need mediation. The first thing that came to my mind, because I've been buried in these texts, was, we all do, brother. <laughs> we all need mediation. Whether it's of a legal kind or a physical kind, what I know for sure is we need a spiritual kind. We need the kind of mediation that only Jesus brings. And that's why you hear out of the voice of Peter and the voice of Paul this morning that very Truth, And I want to turn our attention to it. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, and 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. This is God's word. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's voice, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we now take a few minutes in your word, reflecting upon the truth that is unfurled in these two rich passages of Scripture that teach us much about the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would simply ask for the power of your Holy Spirit now to awaken our hearts and sensibilities to receive this word more than a truth to merely be lodged away in the mind, but a truth that is living, that's coming to transform our hearts. For that petition, for that prayer to be answered, there is nothing within us that can make it happen. It must be your spirit. So would you grant him in great measure now and glorify yourself in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a rich joy on Wednesday nights to gather with a number of you here in the sanctuary to walk through Reformation history. 
If you've not had a chance to join us yet on Wednesday night, I encourage you to come. We're taking a little shift in our study this upcoming week, and we're going to be talking about the theology, four distinctive aspects of the Protestant Reformation and its theology starting this coming Wednesday night. I would love to see you there. But the last six weeks, we've been talking about the history And what we've been seeing as we've talked about the history of the Reformation is that it's no monolithic movement. That is to say that it's not just one group, all homogeneous, all uh, getting along with each other, but it's many different bands, we might say many different streams, that are flowing out of this river called the Reformation. But there have been some distinctives some things that have been true of each of these groups. And as we've talked about them together, some of you have asked questions about the differences between those groups. And even more so, I've received questions about what is the real difference between the late medieval Roman Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation. How would you summarize it, Nate, in a sentence? Because you know I'll give you a paragraph. How would you summarize it in a sentence? I said, I'll do better than that. I'll summarize it in two words. There's just two words that I believe can summarize the distinctiveness, the difference between the Roman Catholicism of the late medieval period and the Protestant Reformation as it begins in the 16th century. Two words, both begin with A. One only has three letters in it. And one only has five letters in it. But those combined eight letters between the two of them push the distinction between this Roman Catholic expression and the Protestant Reformation. Well, what are those two A words? They are the word and and the word alone. The word and and the word alone. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just briefly survey where we've been in this series on the five solas of the Reformation and go all the way back to the very first week, four weeks ago, when we begin to talk about this first plank of the Reformation, sola scriptura, or scripture alone. The Protestant Reformation said that it is the scripture alone that is the authority for the life of the believer, both in whom he, what he is to believe and in that in what he is to practice. The Roman Catholic Church said that it is the scripture and church tradition. It's not scripture alone, it's scripture and Church tradition. The Protestant Reformation, two weeks ago, we discussed faith alone, and we said that faith is the sole instrument through which salvation is received. The Roman Catholic Church said it was faith as well, but it was faith and good works. The Protestant Reformation said that it was grace alone that was the foundation, the basis for salvation, that we might gain a right standing with the Lord. The Roman Catholic Church said it was grace as well, but it said it was grace and personal merits and earnings. The difference between the Protestant Reformation and late medieval Roman Catholicism is the difference between saying Scripture and and Scripture alone. Faith and or faith alone. Grace and or grace alone. And the same is true when we come to the fourth of the solos of the Reformation, where the Protestant Reformation said that it was Christ alone is the mediator of salvation. And the Roman Catholic Church said, yes, that's true. Christ is the mediator of salvation, along with the intercession of the saints who've gone before, and Mary, Jesus' mother, and relics, which are holy things set apart to be able to use as instruments by which to to gain a hearing with the Lord and other things 
that could be used. The problem is that when the reformers actually began reading the text of Scripture, they came across passages like 1 Timothy 2 and Acts 4, the ones we're looking at today. And what became clear to them was that it wasn't Christ and, it was Christ alone. It was as Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now that word no in the Greek is a very, very fascinating word. It's incredibly complex. It just simply means no. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, Martin Luther, writing on the Bible, says that Jesus alone is the center and circumference of the Bible. Uh, Meaning he is the very heartbeat of the Bible's message and he is also the thread that brings all the disparate parts of the Bible together and makes sense of them. Uh, Luther found that as he began to read from Old to New Testament that everything was driving to Jesus as we spoke about right at the very beginning of our service this morning. But when Luther was saying that, again, Luther was saying it because he had read it in the Bible. He'd read John 8 where Jesus, speaking to the spiritually blind leaders of Israel, said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's those very scriptures that testify about me. He was just following the model, Luther, that is, the model that Paul set forth at the end of the book of Acts. In Acts 28, when he was in Rome witnessing to the crowds, preaching from morning to evening. just want to note that. He preached from morning to evening, friends. That was... A long time, don't get worried, but he preached a long time, Acts 28, and here's what he did. He explained to them the kingdom of God, and from the law and the prophets, he persuaded them about Jesus. He traced it all back to the center and the circumference of the Bible, that is Jesus himself. This fresh, Christocentric, biblical recovery during the Reformation recovered what was the uniqueness of Christianity among all other religions. You see, unlike other religions like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, our faith is not a faith that's merely a set of principles to be believed or a set of practices to be obeyed. Our faith is a person to be trusted in. It is a person to be trusted in and to be followed. It is a person to be believed. It is a person to be related to and in communion with. That's why Benjamin Warfield said that the saving power of faith resides not in faith, but in the object of your faith, the almighty Savior on whom it rests. When we look at Acts chapter 4 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and many other Christ-exclusive or Christ-only passages in the Scripture, we need to be asking ourselves a number of questions for our own day and time because we live in a day of time and pluralism, a day and time where it is argued popularly that there are many roads up the mountain. There are many different ways in which you can be saved. And one thing that makes Christianity so intolerable in our very tolerable age is the fact that Jesus claims that he is the exclusive way of salvation. And in this passage and in many other passages in the scripture, because the Bible and God doesn't want us to be deceived, to think we could get there through alternate routes, 
he makes it very plain to us that Jesus is the only way. He is your only hope. And if that's the case, we've got to become conversant in arguing why that's the case. Because that's not very plausible in our day and time. People don't just fall down and go, well, of course that's true. Instead, they argue and deny and come up with other conceptions of how salvation works. So why is it that Christ alone is qualified to be the mediator between God and man? Why is that? I want to give you several points this morning. I want to start by looking at what the Bible makes very plain about Jesus, and that is that he is no mere man. He is the Son of God. He is divine. After Matthew, Mark, and Luke retell the story of Christ's life and ministry, the Apostle John, you may recall, starts his gospel a little differently from theirs. He goes back a little ways. He goes back to the beginning. The very beginning of time. And as he begins to talk about Jesus, he doesn't talk about a virgin birth. He doesn't talk about a preaching of the kingdom of God. No, he goes back to the very first words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And he says, here's where the first time is we see Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John is claiming in the opening of his gospel that this logos, this word, this this God who said, let there be light, and there was light, was none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. The very one who was born in that little outhouse of an inn in Bethlehem. The one who is known as Mary's son. The one who is the carpenter's son of Joseph. This little no-name boy from Nazareth. This little one was actually the pre-existent, always eternal, omnipotent and all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. And so it's not surprising that when you look over the Bible... You see a few chapters later in John chapter 10 that Jesus says, as he's speaking to a few of those uh, Pharisees who are trying to get him into some trouble, as they were known to do, he says, listen, I and the Father are one. We are one. Now, when Jesus says that, you you could read that with a, a 21st century sensibility and go, it's pretty tight with God the Father. They're best buds. They get along really well. He hangs out with them a lot. That's not, that's not the parlance of what it is that Jesus is trying to get across. We know that that's not because of how the Jews responded. The, the Jews heard that out of the mouth of Jesus. You know what they started to do? Pick up stones to kill him because they got it. They knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of heaven and earth, the I am that I am. And they knew that he was committing blasphemy, except they were wrong. Because he wasn't committing blasphemy, he was telling the truth. He is the Son of God. He was one with the Father in essence and in substance. He is equal to the Father in all power and all glory. So much so that just four chapters later in John, John 14, 9, Philip who comes to Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, you're remarkable. And if you could show us the Father, it would be enough. And he goes, whoever sees me has seen the Father. And you begin to realize that 
Jesus, at every turn that he's given an opportunity in the Gospels, connects himself to the very essence of the divine. That even Thomas, the one who had the hardest time coming to conclusions about Jesus, especially following his death when he sees the risen Lord, whom he said he wouldn't believe in until he saw the nail prints in his hands, as soon as he sees his visage can but help but say, my Lord and my God. He knew immediately. Now the rest of the New Testament obviously agrees, whether we're looking at Hebrews or Titus or Colossians. Uh, the, The point being is that the scripture is very clear on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is because there is no salvation if Jesus is not divine. Think with me for a minute. If we need someone to stand in our place, we need someone to be our substitute and to receive on our behalf the judgment of God, that person can't be a mere man. Why? For mere men can't receive the full and unmitigated judgment of God and be victorious. They die. They are undone. They are destroyed by the judgment of God. A mere man can't secure salvation for anyone, let alone himself, because of the power of who God is. Therefore, it's absolutely important, essential to our salvation, that the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's going to be a fitting Savior, if we're going to call him Savior, he can't be just like you and I. In terms of quality, he has to be divine. It is his divinity that makes him a fit and unique mediator between God and man. But it's not only his divinity. He's got to be human as well. It's the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's equally essential to him being a fitting mediator between God and man. Now, all you got to do is go back to John, John chapter 1. You remember on down in John's prologue there in chapter 1, he gets to verse 14 and he begins to take a turn from this this glorious divinity of Jesus and he begins to say this about him, the word became flesh. little segue into Christmas here in October. The word became flesh and what did it do? It dwelt among us. The same eternal word that existed with God and was God from eternity past took on human flesh. The way the theologians like to put it is that the eternal Son of God added to himself a human nature. He didn't, lest you be confused as some throughout history have been, he didn't de-God himself or divest himself of divinity. No, he added to his divinity a humanity that he did not have previously. How do I know that? How can I claim that? Well, I just read the Bible. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now again, this is a very complex word in the Greek, this word fullness. It means fullness. All of it. Every single bit of what it means to be divine is in the bodily form of the Lord Jesus Christ. This glorious, mysterious incarnation. Now if that's true, and this is what we see in the scriptures, then it would be normal and understandable and expectant that Jesus would go through the processes of human growth and development and maturity, wouldn't he? 
that he would go through human gestation and birth and development. And of course, that's what we see when we look into the Gospel of Luke. Remember Luke chapter 2, where we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, that he became strong and was filled with wisdom, Luke 2.41, and then 2.52, that he grew in favor with God and with man. As we run through the pages of the gospel, don't we see that Jesus experiences all kinds of regular, normal, human, physical, social, psychological, and spiritual phenomena? He grew tired, we're told in John 4 at Jacob's well, and he stopped to rest. His stomach growled at the end of 40 days as he was being tested in the wilderness, according to Matthew 4. His tongue became parched as he was on the cross, and he cried out, I am thirsty. In John 19, he knew the warmth of his mother's love. He, he knew the grief of Lazarus's death as he wept at his tomb. He knew the disappointment of Peter's denial. He knew the betrayal and the sorrow that came along with it with regards to Judas's actions. And he knew the suffering. As the Roman soldiers pressed in upon his brow the crown of thorns and nailed into his hands and his feet the nails. Everything that is true of what it means to be human was true of Jesus. Which is extremely good news, friend. Because if Jesus is to be a true Savior, a fitting Savior, he can't merely be God. He has to also be man because he's got to faithfully represent who we are. Many of the heretical teachings throughout history have denied in one way, shape, or form the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have argued that Jesus had a real physical body, but he didn't really have a real human mind. Uh, others have said he had a physical body, but his body was different than ours. It was a super body. It was an amazing body. It was, it, was, it was sort of like Clark Kent in the telephone booth. Like he could just go in and do stuff that we can't do. He was different than, than we were with regards to his human flesh. But faithfully, when you're reading the scriptures, the church over the years came to very clear conclusions regarding the humanity of Christ because they realized that if Jesus doesn't have a real body, or at least the body that is like yours and mine, how can he faithfully represent us physically? If Jesus doesn't have a real mind like you and me, how can he faithfully represent our minds? And if he doesn't have our mind and our bodies and, and our souls in 100% clarity of human expression, then that didn't die on the cross, and that didn't get buried, and that didn't get raised, and that didn't get ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means, as Gregory of Nanzianzu said, if Jesus didn't take it up, then he didn't heal it. If he didn't take it up, the human mind, the human body, the human composition, then he couldn't heal it. He had to faithfully walk through life as a human and and do it in such a way that faithfully represents who we are so that we can have a fitting Savior who can communicate, as it were, to God because He's fully divine and who can represent us absolutely because He's fully human. Jesus does both. Well, what's interesting, though, when you think about Jesus' divine and divinity and you think about His humanity is there's a third thing that, well, is not like us at all, but it was like we were supposed to be. 
The third thing that Jesus had to be in order to be a faithful mediator between God and man was he had to be sinless. He had to be righteous. After Jesus' death on the cross, it's the first actual uh, truthful exclamation as to who Jesus is. You remember this in Luke? We're told that the skies go dark and there's an earthquake and graves actually open up. It's a mysterious section in the Gospels. And the centurion soldier who sees Jesus, who's now given up his spirit, he looks upon him and he says, Surely this man was the righteous Son of God. He got it. Surely this man was innocent. uh, All of what's going on here is declaring to me that this man was absolutely unique. Peter, that same one who would deny him, leans later on the, the prophet Isaiah. And you know what he says? He says, this Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5 says, he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Let's pause and just simply reflect for a second upon the reality of this. Jesus lived 33 years upon the earth. And he never had a stray thought or an offhanded sinful word. He never had a moment slip in action. He never did anything with the slightest tinge or taint of sinfulness. Now, as you hear that, maybe you're like some, and you think, well, he's not living the life I'm living. He must not have been uh, like me. He must have, you know, floated through life with some kind of ease, somewhat impermeable to the normal struggles and difficulties and temptations that I go through. Well, it would be easy to draw that conclusion, except the Bible doesn't say that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, he was tempted. In all points, as we are, yet without sin. It was fitting for Jesus to go through the fullness of temptation for struggle and for difficulty and to succeed and to be victorious in it, to win, to be steadfast, to persevere and to get to the end and to know that of him it is said, the Father is well pleased. It was critical That this Jesus would be in the image and the nature of God as described in Colossians. That he would be in the fullness of human form. And yet in that human and divine nature he would be absolutely righteous. He would be perfect. You know what that means is you don't have to see Jesus as this perfect perfection that you can never relate to. Isn't that the way often our heroes are in our minds? They're on pedestals. You know, we can never reach. That's why we call them heroes. They're just so amazing. We just wish we could be like them. And when we're around them, you know, we kind of cower. We don't even know what to say. I'm like this with sports stars. You know, I guess it's worth saying this. I've met Ben Zobrist, who plays for the Chicago Cubs. He lives here in Franklin. And uh, I was at Donuts with Dad one day at school. His kids go to school there. And uh, he walked in, casual, normal. He plays for the Chicago Cubs, in case you don't know. Of course you know that, though. Of course you know that. Amazing player. And uh, he asked to sit by me. Like, can we sit right here? Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, you can sit right here. You know? 
And I think, oh, this is going to be my chance to totally geek out on him. But of course, I had nothing to say. Like, <laughs> what am I going to say to him? He's Ben Zobras, the MVP of the World Series from last year. So you're like, what am I going to do? And so a lot of us are like that. It's sort of untouchable. Jesus is not like that. He's tempted in every way as we are, yet he is without sin, which means that he is both the aspirational hope of our lives, but he's as intimate and as real and as tight and as close to us because he's experienced all points of our struggle. And so he is a great high priest who you can run to in the moments of your lowest points. I want you to think right now of the worst thing that you have ever done. The thing that in the back of your mind you think, surely God can't save me from this. Jesus was tempted in that way. He was tempted in that way at all points like you were. I think the writer of Hebrews knew we needed to hear that. Because we have a tendency to think that our sin is special or greater or more difficult or whatever. Jesus faced your temptation. But the wonderful, gracious, amazing news is that unlike you, he didn't give in. He is absolutely righteous. He is divine. He is perfectly human. His character is sinless. This fits Jesus to be able to straddle heaven and earth. This fits Jesus to stand as the bridge between God and man. He is the one who is the crossing of the chasm that we can never through our own goodness, through our, never, through our own earnings, through our gifts, through our personalities, through anything that we think and treasure as special as us, it wouldn't even begin to put one plank to cross that chasm. But Jesus has stretched out and he has crossed it. And he did so because he's not only perfect in his divinity and perfect in his humanity and sinless in his character, but he is perfect in his love. He is absolutely perfect in his love. Do you know what we're told here in the text of Scripture? That it's not just divinity and humanity and sinlessness, but it's atonement that he's come to give. He's come to give himself away. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin. That's what we were just talking about. He who knew no sin, he made him to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, it's important that we understand what he's saying. He is not saying that Jesus was not sinful and that he was made sinful in order to make us righteous. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus, the sinless one, was charged with the penalty of our sin as if it was his. And he received for our sin the unmitigated wrath and judgment of God for us on the cross. And he did so as the only one that shouldn't receive it. The only one who shouldn't receive it is the very one who chose to receive it. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. His passion, his undying and fervent passion is that he would live eternally with you in a circle of unending righteous love. That's his passion. And it was worth it. 
to cross heaven and earth, to go through the struggles and the difficulties, to be charged with our sin, to be brought on chumped up charges, to be crucified next to common thieves. It was absolutely worth it for Jesus because he loves you. Now here's the reality. Because Jesus wants that and God wants that, it's a rule of thumb. If God wants it, he gets it. It's a rule of thumb in the universe. You know that, right? If he wants it, he gets it. And because he wants it, he secured it in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already accomplished it. Here's what that means. If you are in Christ, your future for that experience of the righteous and unending love of God is absolutely certain. It is absolutely certain. Now, I know you worry whether you'll be able to retire. And if you retire, will you have any money? Or will your kids take all of your money? Or, you know, what will happen you weren't, if you, will I graduate? Will I get into that school? Will I ever get married? Will my life turn out the way that it is? I have no idea. In light of the truth of what we're talking about, it doesn't matter. That's what the Bible says. The end for which you've been created is not retirement or graduation or vocation or that house across town. Don't settle for piddly things. When eternity and unending righteousness and love is offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't settle for those things. This is the certain end that has been secured for you in Jesus. It is as secure as Jesus. No one can take it away. No one can pluck you out of his hand, he says in John chapter 10. Now, if that is true then living the Christ-alone-centered life is unbelievably joyous. It's unbelievably joyous. I want you to first just reflect with me about the fact that if that's your end and that's the hope and it's absolutely certain, do you feel how sure your life is right now? Does it feel strong right now? Does it almost feel like there's a rock underneath you that will never move? Because that's what the Bible says. That's, what is, that's absolutely true. I have no idea how many other things are going to play out in my life and yours. But the one thing that matters is going to play out perfectly. I live in absolute, absolutely stable, impermeable, peaceful, calm reality in Christ. Now the world may swirl all around me and it will. But the one thing that matters is certain so I can leave the rest to him. And when that is sure, here's what else happens a vibrancy begins to take over your life in the here and now. When you feel certain and secure in Christ, you know what you begin to be willing to do? Live vibrantly and live lively within the reality of what it is that he's accomplished for you. You no longer have to just be fearful and concerned and worried. You don't have to live your self-value any longer by things like gifts or abilities or achievements or relationships or possessions or success. Those things are going to come and go and they're going to constantly make you feel like sinking sand. But when you're on Christ, He's a solid rock. And He's where it is that you are to stand. If you feel your life is insecure and shaky, then you're standing in the wrong place. Because it's not. Because daily as we will rise and as we wake up and as our eyes hit the sun again and as we close them again at night, you know the one thing that is constantly true is that the righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account and there's no one taking it away. 
There's no one taken away. That's a vibrant, stable, hope-filled life. And I believe what begins to happen, if that's our life, is we begin to say things like the Apostle Paul says. Things like this in Philippians 2. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I suffer the loss of all things. And I count them, even the things I have, as but rubbish, that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in Him, having a righteousness that's not of my own, should I have achieved it from the law, but that which comes by faith in Christ. Righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know the power of His resurrection. Well, that sounds like a man who knows something of the centrality of Jesus. That he's willing to lay absolutely everything on the line and live by the heartbeat that Jesus, that Christ alone is his identity, is his hope, his peace. It is his all in all. Friends, if we are wanting and desiring something of the spirit of 1517 to break into 2017 then we've got to get back to the reality, the joy, and the power of Christ alone. Christ alone. It's not, it's not any other thing in your life that you like to point to that's life. You will find all other ground is sinking sand. So it's on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. It is our prayer and it is our hope as a congregation, to be people that are increasingly marked by a Christ-centered existence. That's who we want to be. And by God's grace through the power of His Spirit, He will grant it to one degree of glory to the next until the day that we find ourselves in Christ's presence in that unending righteous love. And we will say to each other, I tasted this when I was there. Oh, but this is more sweet than I could have ever imagined it would be. So don't listen to the messages of the world. Because everything that glitters is not gold. But Jesus is the precious diamond. Hold him. And sell everything else. And you have all that you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to increase the treasuredness of Jesus in our hearts and our lives. Until you do that, we will continue to opt for and forfeit the spiritual farm for lesser treasures that will not satisfy. And Lord, you know in this room right now how tempting some of those treasures are and you know how distant this moment will feel for some of us in just an hour or so from now. And especially by tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday. And so it's got to be the staying power of your Holy Spirit to keep the freshness of the reality of Jesus before us. And so make this reality inescapable to us. Give it staying power within our hearts. And let us become so weaned on, so as it were addicted to, the stability and the peace and the hope of being found in Christ that when the baubles of the world come our way, we easily push them aside because we know that they can't give what they promise and that only Jesus' promises are worth trusting.
So, Lord, help us in this. For our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and they are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. So would you this day, as you've enlightened our minds to Jesus, let this not be a fleeting moment where we felt something in the middle of a service, but let this be a reality that lives with us into every day of our life as we grow incrementally from one degree of glory to the next. This prayer is in accord with your will. Hear it and answer it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.